I love it. I just love Diana Hamilton. And of course, who wouldn't? If you were associated with Becky, you would love Diana Hamilton <laughs> at all. So yes. Claire Sheldon. Claire Sheldon. Sure, I'll, I'll do that. <laughs> Thank you for bringing us uh, showbiz. And that will be it for the bulletin this afternoon. And uh, it's brought to you by the Ibrahims, right? Yeah, the Ibrahims. <laughs> yeah. Let's go to my for more of the news and updates of all the developing stories. Do enjoy the rest of our programs. Bye from the Ibrahims. Hello. Yeah, from the Ibrahims. <laughs>
on Joy News and on Joy 99.7 FM. My name is Nathaniel Atto. And you know what happens at this time on a weekday during this period, right? This is Afcon today. And over here, we get together the best possible minds to bring you a proper in-depth analysis of the issues that have been happening at the ongoing Africa Cup of Nations. Well, we're 24 hours away from that destiny-defining game that the Black Stars are going to be playing against the Pharaohs of Egypt. But that will be for later. There are other developments in the camp of the Black Stars. There are developments with the fans who um, have been, you know, meddling in some money issues and are looking forward to, uh, you know, doing something to make a statement if something is not done. We'll be getting into that matter and we'll be going on the grounds to uh, Cote d'Ivoire to have a full feel of what exactly is happening on the ground. There was an earlier report on the Sports Centre on Joy 99.7 FM with Fentu Tahiru Fentu earlier today where there was talk about uh, the Ministry of Youth and Sports handing out monies to some fans and all of that. But another twist to the story. We'll get into that. Now, the heroics of Namibia is a subject that we cannot run away from. And it's because Namibia have given us proof as the first surprise element of this tournament. Were you expecting them to do what they did against Tunisia? Well, we'll be reviewing that. And also, we look at the heroes who now have lost their vibe. I'm talking about the heroes of 1996 in the Bafana Bafana of South Africa. Well, the Bafana Bafana of 1996 definitely is not the Bafana Bafana of 2024. Uh, South Africa starting on a jerky note with a loss. We'll be talking about that as well. And coming up, well, the nation that brought Africa great pride to be the most achieved nation at the FIFA World Cup. I'm talking about Morocco. Well, they begin their campaign today and we'll be getting into how good it could look for them and how challenging it could possibly be as well. All of these and more plus your thoughts are here in this one-hour package here on Joy 99.7 FM, on Joy News and on Joy Prime. Remember, Joy News is on 421 on DSTV and Joy Prime is on 281 on the same channel. A round of messages and the conversations start off with my guests who are already seated here in the studio. My name is Nathaniel Atto. You're welcome to Afcon today. game on the continent the Africa Cup of Nations this is absolutely incredible from Bunajia Mane Senegal our African champions absolutely delighted with a goal for his country still Salah little crossover tries to finish it Egypt slips in the game Super, super, super goal from Dede Ayu. Man, it's absolute madness that's taking place here. He's got it! Looks absolutely distraught. He's ball in and there's 3 0. This is absolutely incredible. This is absolutely incredible. Did you see what happened there? Oh, my word. Wasn't that sensational? game on the continent the Africa Cup of Nations this is absolutely incredible from Bunajia Mane Senegal our African champions absolutely delighted with a goal for his country still Salah little crossover tries to finish it Egypt slips in the game Super, super, super goal from Dede Ayu. Man, it's absolute madness that's taking place here. He's got it! Looks absolutely distraught. He's gone in and there's 3-0. This is absolutely incredible. This is absolutely incredible. 
thank you very much for staying with us here on AFCON today. And we're going to get into the conversations in a bit, like I said. But earlier, you know, I mentioned to you that we're going to hinge a bit on the situation with our supporters. Now, there is a bit of history to all of this. Do remember that back in 2014, the issue of supporters and having support from government so they could move in masses to go and support our national teams around the world with tournaments hit a very big snag because of the happenings at the FIFA World Cup. And, of course, a whole commission was set up to look into that matter, and one of the resolutions was that government was not to sponsor the attendance of fans to any, uh, you know, tournaments that the Black Stars or any other national team was engaged in. Well, years on, I mean, there have been some form of, you know, reviewing and looking at this again and, um, you know, be, because the truth of the matter is that uh, the national teams have to be supported. And sometimes, uh, due to economic situations, these uh, fans and these supporters, these regular fans, are not able to, uh, you know, embark on these trips. So what really is the situation? Well, uh, in the studio with me are, uh, you know, Victor Achutamaklo of Joy Sports and also um, Coach Kweju Ejejima. Now, he will, they be, they'll be looking at this perspective from, looking at this from different perspectives. And, of course, these are conversations that always come up. Now, the question many are asking is, why should each fan be given that amount of money? Is it something that was agreed on before uh, the fans and playing there? We'll be getting some more explanation and clarification as well. We'll also be going onto the ground uh, to Cote d'Ivoire, where our man for the tournament, Muftar Nabila Abdullah, has visited these fans who, uh, you know, have their misgivings and their, their, you know, their feedback to give. And we'll be bringing it to bring us, uh, you know, some reports from in there and we'll have a good feel of how the situation is like. All right, so gentlemen, good to have you here. Um, actually, good to see you. Good to be back on the show. Yeah, I like this all white vibe. Uh, we're talking about actual <laughs> sneakers. Uh, you have a look at the sneakers, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you look have good, some man. Mischief today. Yeah. <laughs> good to see you guys, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Look, um, the last time any such thing came up was the Brazil, uh, you know, saga. Now, when 2024, when Cote d'Ivoire, neighboring Cote d'Ivoire, I mean, and something similar is coming up. Fans carrying them there to support the national team, issues of money. This only goes to establish one thing, that we, and when I say we, those entrusted with power are very indisciplined and not committed to lay down procedures that they are expected to follow, right? And you referenced the Java Fair Commission. A white paper was issued on the back of that, which essentially passed it into law or the equivalent of that, whatever the recommendations were, because the bulk of those were accepted. And in the wisdom of the commission, having interrogated those who sponsored and came up with the idea to send funds to Brazil, the funds themselves, the team, and investigated the influence of that on the team's performances and the value that the country got out of it, came to the realization that there was no verifiable value. And so that exercise, that concept, whatever it was, did not represent value for money. And so they, they made the recommendation that this should not happen again. But we have seen, AFCON 2019, governments flew supporters to Egypt. Um, the tournament in Cameroon, we flew supporters to Cameroon. World Cup in Qatar, we flew supporters there. And when you listen to the commentary that precedes all of these moves, it tells you where these decisions are coming from, and they are made with strong political backing. And so if you do a quick Google search, you'll find people like Samia Wuku, you'll find the Honorable Sergei Minsabunsu and the likes, others from the NDC, Kobna Women and the likes, also referencing why it is important to get supporters to help the nation in such events. But the reality is this. It is simply an exercise in futility. Okay. We'll come to that. Um, just before we, we cross over to uh, Cote d'Ivoire to have a conversation with Muftar Nabila Abdullah, I'd like to say big greetings to all of our friends who are watching us from different parts of the world. So uh, those of you in Asia, in Europe, in different parts of the world, thank you so much. And of course, all of our friends on different parts of the African continent, thank you so much for making this your number one in terms of the analysis and the discussion of the issues on the ongoing Africa Cup of Nations in Cote d'Ivoire. Mufti, good to see you. Um, I realize it's uh, work in progress as usual. 
I'm I'm learning how to speak French once more. Like, like I'm Ah no 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 no. You je parle pour français. That's the best I can say. You know, uh, but we'll do that later on. Yeah. Uh, Muftal, you visited the fans a few, uh, you know, just about an hour ago. What's the situation? Uh, bring us up to speed on it. Well, Nats, um, um, it is it's quite difficult uh, for many people to actually accept and understand what is happening. But it is more of a tragedy. Uh, and I'm sure you have followed the national teams for a very long time. Um, you are very much aware that any time the Ministry of Youth and Sports uh, takes people out to go and support the national team, the onus is always on the ministry to cater for them. Very well. And it is not different in this, this time around in the African populations. In fact, I, I, I find it very difficult appreciating the, the point that the story was rather directed towards the supporters who had claimed that they were going to come back to Ghana because they, they, they were not completely taken care of. Government officials who are here have been taken care of by the Ministry of Youth and Sport. Journalists who were flown out here were, were also taken care of by the Ministry of Youth and Sport. So it is quite selective to get the story just to the supporters and not even include that the journalists who filed a report actually were also taken care of by the Ministry of Youth and Sport. Because it is something that is always done by the Ministry of Youth and Sport because they have decided that they are taking you out to go and report on the national team. For so it, the onus is on them to make sure that you are fed and you are accommodated. The point is, the money that have been given to the supporters, the one million dollars that have been given to the supporters, is for the entire period that the blasters will be here. So hold on, hold on, Muftal. So this is to say that if the Black Stars, for instance, were going to progress all the way to the final, four hundred dollars was what each uh, fan had. To cater for himself between now and the end of the tournament. No, so so after the group stage, today happened that Ghana qualifies for the next phase of their competition. Then I'm sure they will have another time to be given. Let okay. Me just, let, let, let me just ask something pretty quick. There were some supporters who came here and they didn't come on the ticket of the Ministry of Youth and Sports. And the Ministry has decided that even though they did not budget for them to come here, they got a miscellaneous. The supporters have decided they want to come and support the national team. So the military says, if you are here in the interest of the national team, the miscellaneous will also be used to cater for you. Okay. However, there is no guarantee that if we are giving support at A, $400, or we are giving support at B, $500, you would also get the same amount because there was not a specific budget for you. Okay. So that's what has happened. In fact, earlier today, just as you can see casting on your shop, they addressed the, uh, the, the media where they mentioned clearly that at no point did any supporter threaten to go back to Ghana because they were not properly taken care of. In fact, some of the supporters were sleeping on the floor. And because they were sleeping on the floor, the ministry has decided to take up the cost. One of the things you, you would wonder is the fact that why would someone decide to leave Ghana, come to Abidjan, you, you, you know very well that you, you don't have a place to lay your head, you know very well that you don't have money to take care of yourself, and you are here. And in the end, it goes straight to the doors of the Ministry of Youth and Sports, and it, it, it creates lots of confusion out there. Very well. I understand the argument of people that why is the ministry bringing people to come and watch the national team, buying my stickies for them, and give them money again? I can understand that argument. We are a country that is lacking so much in terms of sporting infrastructure. So that money that has been directed to government officials who are here, to journalists who are here, supporters who are here, can be used to take care of better things for the development of our football. Instead of giving it to people, that they have personally brought here to come and support the national team. Very well. And mm. Very well. them and buy them great tickets again. So Very I, well. I do not disagree with anyone who says that it is one of the one of the, uh, the things that is not a priority for the Ministry of Youth and Sports mm. because I, I think that that money, if you have to calculate the number of supporters who are here, and each supporter is giving four hundred dollars. I just think it's a massive, massive money that can do good things for Ghana. Very well, very well, very well, Muftal. You, you hold on there. Let me just get 
you know, Kwejo's immediate reaction to all of this. And then we'll come to you to tell us what the ministry has resolved to do going forward, especially with the incidents of all of these confusions that we're having with uh, the fans. So we'll come. Yes. And you will just speak the press conference of the Egypt coach because I'm headed there right now. Okay, very short. Okay, all right, good. So then let's, let's take that reaction before you go, before you go. Uh, we'll hold on to uh, Kwejo in a second. So tell us, what's the way forward in this matter? I, I didn't get your question. Clear. All right. I want you to tell me what the ministry has resolved to do going forward in this matter. Okay. So what they have decided to do is that um, the ministry um, says that the supporters are scattered all over Abidjan. Um, they are moving from one hotel to the other to cater for their needs. And they have decided that each supporter who is in this country in the interest of the Black Stars will be taken care of. Um, I do also understand, in fact, I was having a conversation with one of the officials of the Ministry of Youth and Sports, who stated categorically that it is important that they represent the interests of every single Ghanaian who is here. And every single Ghanaian who is here, even if you are, if you came uh, 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 and you are not on the list or the budgeted group of people that the Ministry decided to bring here, they will find a way of uh, catering for you. All right. Mustafa, thank you so much. Uh, you catch up with the Egypt coach. We want to hear what he has to say. And we'll be uh, coming back to you later in the evening uh, during the bulletins for more. Thank you so much, Mustafa. Have a good one. Have a good one. So, Mustafa Nabila Abdullah there, our tournament correspondent, bringing us up to speed and explaining the true situation on the ground to all of us. Akwajo, we're back here. We're back here. I know. Um, Nat, it's failed policies over the years and uh, we've got politics also meddling into sports and that's what comes down to clearly i know after this tournament there's going to be a whole lot of you know 360 cycle back into talking point how much the ministry spent over the supporters that didn't even you know weren't accounted for and stuff like that and we don't need to go through this one phase again we have to really come to full circle now that look the center of everything that we're doing now is football. What's the state of football in Ghana? This is the biggest talking point we should be focusing on. Any other thing else, if we take funds, if we pay for funds, if we decide to pay for funds, $5,000 each, for what in the end? We have to look at it this way. What is the state of Ghana football? What is the state of grassroots football? So whatever we do, has to be centered on what we are doing in terms of our football-wise. So if football is not excelling in this country, if local league is not excelling, if clubs are failing and struggling to actually pay for normal wages here, come on, man, how, do you much, how much more do you pay for fans, $400, to take them to an Afghan? And so what? And after what happens? The team is even struggling. We know that progressively our football is declining. So the, the fact of the matter is we're just scratching the surface and we're just teasing our own selves. Mm. We need to come back to the basics. Our, our whole frustration, our argument, our rebuilding, everything should be centered on how to start Ghana football, reboot our football again, because it's not happening. Well, Kwejo uh, Ejima there, and he's here in the studio with uh, Victor Achu Tamaklo. Um, together, we're bringing you the analysis. We just heard from Muftar Nabila Abdullah. He says that there are some who traveled on their own. They were not under or not in or on the approved list of the ministry. But then the ministry has extended a hand of goodwill to support them either way. Now, question we're asking ourselves now and in moving forward the conversations. Um, a law has been passed. It's a, it's a subject of white paper, uh, you know, conclusions. Now, question is, so do we scrap this? Because I, I'm, I'm imagining a scenario, and this is why I'm asking this question. I remember the, the day that we, we sat in the stadium in Fortaleza for the game between Ghana and Germany yeah. in Brazil 2014. And I remember it was like every... One of out of every two people you saw was German. Yeah. One out of every two people you saw was German, and you could hear the cheers, the deafening noise that that erupted any time a German player was mentioned ahead of the start of the game. Yeah. It was massive, you know. 
And the question you ask yourself is, is support even needed in the first place? Is it needed? Because then we're saying it is not a priority for us now. So would we have rather we didn't go to the, you know, or the fans didn't have the means, so we shouldn't go to the tournament with fans at all? Uh, we sent supporters to Brazil, didn't we? We did. Um, in excess of a thousand. Yes. And yet they were not in the stadium. Were they? Well, some of them were. I mean, uh, Ghana versus Germany, which I referenced, we had, we had the fans yeah. there. Look, at the end of the day, you have to look at the cost to the nation and the benefits as well. I don't think there is enough to begin from doing that. If you look at the There's cost, no benefit at all from there, having the supporters in your stands? There is benefit. The players seeing the Ghana flag and seeing people there? That, can, that should not be mm. understated. Mm. I'm just saying that if you compare that to the cost to the nation, it is difficult to justify it. We're talking here about, in this case, 800,000 US dollars. We're not an oil-rich country. and we're not, we're not Morocco. We're not... I don't even want to extend it to the Gulf countries. We're not Egypt. We're not South Africa. We're not a rich country. In football, we're even poorer. So you want to see our resources used judiciously. But this thing continues because of a certain powerful constituency that makes it possible for this to continue, that actually needs it to continue. Earlier, I, I gave you some names, and I mentioned certain politicians who will go publicly to say that, irrespective of the government white paper, we cannot say that we will not take supporters. It is because they know they have a certain quota on that list. That quota is a, is a quota they give to their constituency executives, their party supporters, right. who they want to say thank you to. So when the sports minister presents the budget to cabinets and tells them we want to take 500 supporters and that list gets approved, three days later, the sports minister gets a call from some big party member, sometimes even from the opposition, and says, can you put in 10 of these people for me? He's, because of the relationship, he's going to say yes, or I'll, look, I'll see what I can do. The next time it's someone from his own party member, from his own party, by the time he realizes... The list has bloated to probably three, four times. In that situation, you are now looking at people who have been put there by virtue of the political parties that they support. Now, even if you want to limit it to one party, is that even a fair process to members of that party? So if you don't have a relationship with that member of parliament or the constituency executive, you are not getting on that list. It is the country's resources. So if we are not going to, among ourselves, agree that this is a fair criteria for selecting the people. And again, I'm not even saying that I, I agree with this because if you are a supporter and you want to go and watch the Black Stars, you have to be able to. We cannot in good conscience as a people criticize the Black Stars and call them mercenaries for demanding what is, what is their due. But when it comes to our duty to the national team, we will decide to say that we need to be paid to support our national team. It, it is unconscionable. But unfortunately, even those of us in the media are party to this, right? So this is a big industry where when the minister decides that, you know what, for this year, I'm not going to do this, someone gives the information to the supporter group's heads, and then we see one man supporter on TV. He's, he's, he's calling the minister a small boy. He's saying all sorts of things because the minister has given, the media has given him a platform, and he knows that he has a certain political constituency behind him that will at the very least insulate him and try to advance his cause. So what we're dealing with here is a hydra-headed monster that only a few people are prepared to face head-on. Because trust me, if this government goes out of power, the next administration, be it Dr. Baumia, be it uh, former President Mahama, they will be faced with the same problem. And if this business was not as lucrative as it is, you would not have... Ghana Supporters Union, National Supporters Union, Supporters Union of Ghana, and all of these are other groups that... Woshuga, Women's Supporters Union of Ghana. <laughs> now we are seeing some of them amalgamate into one body. Yeah. But there is bread to be made from that business. Mm. We had better win tomorrow. Because then that's the only way this matter <laughs> we'll go to will bed. be swept under the carpet. Right? Well, I think so. Um, I just want to go back to one basic you know, structure. All over the world, not. Supporters Union are organized. Supporters are always organized to tournaments. It's, not, it's nothing new to Ghana. You know, and in the UK, a lot of supporters, there's so many, even football clubs, average football clubs got massive support unions that they take them to away matches, be Champions League, be Europa, wherever. 
So Ghana as a national team has, it's no different from that. But the problem here is, if Ghana plays well, naturally there are a lot of people that travel on their own. So there's no justification of none of us saying that we need to organize supporters to take them because the country needs support. I have to take it back to the basics. What is the state of our football once again? If we play well, I was... It will be a point of attraction. I was in Wembley. Mm. Ghana played England. Mm. We were struggling for tickets. I can tell you, people took days off from work. People were rushing from work. Ordinary people, Africans... Ghanaians, everyone wanted to come see Ghana play England. And that was a spectacle because why? We were playing good football. We had a Samojan who was doing wonders with Sunderland. We had great players in the Premiership. Everybody all over in Europe that were playing so good. And you could tell. It goes on and on and on. The story goes on. Ghana played Brazil Stadium full up. It's because Ghana was playing well. The Black Stars were playing well. It's just as simple as that. All these politics that we're talking about, everything that's involved, has to go back to the basics. What is the state of our football? What's the state of Black Stars? Well, we're struggling to beat Cape Verde. Mm. Why wouldn't we discuss? We should be talking about Cape Verde and looking ahead to the game against Egypt and, you know, the Black Stars blossoming. Not even talking about $400. Why? Because we're not playing well. Interesting stuff there. So, um, this is the situation here in the studio. Uh, it's unanimous that there is a problem there, and we need to get back to the basics. Make the national team attractive, and people will travel from all over the world. Let's now review the results from last night, because there was a surprise package in there. So we'll quickly take you through again, and, um, and after that, we'll take a look at that surprise package that Namibia uh, you know, threw before all of us with that performance that they posted against Tunisia. Um, it, was, it, was, it was amazing. Um, I was always looking forward to that talking point, and I believe that Namibia provided that talking point for us. Aju? And look, what we saw yesterday was a clear case of a team that was prepared and provisioned for the game. So you can say everything you want to say about commitment and dedication and, and passion and being nationalistic and expecting the players, national team players to reflect those values. They did. But what foundationed all of those was a structure in place that allowed the players to then go out there and give their all, right? Otherwise, it will be chaos. Commitment, passion alone is not enough. You come to the AFCON, you come with a plan. You come with a plan that shows sufficient appreciation of your opponents. And so that Tunisian midfield three of Ramdan, of Skriti, and then Slimani, what do you do? How do you get beyond them? For an Namibian team that is not very expansive, that is not able to dominate possession, how do you get around a team like that who have come to the party with such a structure? But they decided to be very compact, low block, but defend very well and very aggressive. And also, for me, it was a turnaround time. Every time they, they won possession, the speed with which they had to make the transition. And if you watch the highlights, it appears as though every time they won possession, they had players almost in the right spaces. And so you had Prince, you had the former Ashanti gold midfielder, Petrus Shitembe there, ready to pounce and then take full advantage of that. And at the end of the day, but for Peter Shalilile's wastefulness, they could have won by a far wider margin. He had two clear-cut opportunities that he should have converted, and then he missed them. I mean, this perhaps is going to be the first chance that he had, he himself and then Dean Hoto combining on that left side. The anticipation here, excellent. Hoto gets the ball, squares it into the path of Shalili, and he should be doing much better here. But you can pardon him. Throughout the qualifiers, he was their top scorer, scored in every game that they played, including the two games over Cameroon and the game that they won in South Africa. But you had a very well-drilled team, tactically very sound, very much aware of their limitations, and they took the game to, to, to Tunisia, whose coach, after the game, was left making excuses. Hmm. So there it is uh, on our screen now, uh, moments from Tunisia versus Namibia. Namibia providing that very big surprise, mm -hmm. and... Um, this, this is one of the moments indeed. Yep. Uh, take a look at that. And, Again, uh, Shalilile it was just, just by the whisker. Yeah. Now, what Namibia did very well in this particular game was the fact that they pressed so high and they were quick on their, off their bikes every moment they got the ball. So basically, you watch their tactics, their approach was not to control the game. They didn't care about controlling the game. 
All they cared about was pressing high. Off the ball, they pressed high. On the ball, they pressed high. So you could tell the strikers, they were moving into the right spaces. In transition, one thing they did so well in transition that they didn't waste too much time on the ball. They always played the ball into space, finding the right man, and then quickly they would pounce on it. However, in the end, they were very clinical. Clinical indeed, and take a look at this. Um, you know, so there was a goal that was disallowed? That was disallowed. Yeah, yeah. 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 This, this one was... Slightly offside. Yeah, yeah, but this was disallowed. To, the key mm. to everything they did for me was how they forced and they took control of the game, right? The possession stats will tell you that Tunisia had in excess of 60%. But it was Namibia who were controlling the game because they determined the action spots. They determined how long Tunisia were going to get the ball in the areas where they could actually hurt them. So for as much as Tunisia saw the ball, they stayed in their shape and they were in control of where the ball went to and the intensity of the pace at which the game was played, which allowed them to be able to hit on the counter breaks and then still stay in shape. Unfortunately for Tunisia, they didn't seem to have the pledge to stretch the game and then actuations of the Namibian defense. Wow, interesting stuff there. So the uh, diamond-rich nation of Namibia um, there, and um, is it Botswana or Namibia? One of them, yeah. Um, so there it is. It's, it's just very interesting that Namibia now have given us a reason to uh, refer to them very constantly. We'll be doing, uh, you know, a quick turnaround on, on Burkina Faso and also... Why choose a Sleep Number Smart Bed? Because no two people sleep the same. Only the Sleep Number Smart Bed lets you each choose your individual firmness and comfort your Sleep Number setting. The Climate 360 Smart Bed is so smart, it actively cools or warms up to 13 degrees on either side for your ideal sleep temperature. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. To find a store near you, visit sleepnumber.com. You know uh, how uh, the the Mauritania game, and also we'll be taking a look at uh, the other game that was played earlier. But right now, I'd want to bring uh, the man of the moment, the man who brings us the figures, uh, to give us some focus on this game from the statistical view and the statistical angle. Uh, Karim, good to see you. Uh, come over, come over, Karim. <laughs> how are you doing? Everything okay? I'm doing very well. Nice. Good to see you. Uh, you were expecting that Namibia uh, victory in a way. Well, it's. <laughs> I should ask you a question instead. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. He's blown everyone out of here. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, now, the question is um, at the half corner, which teams do you think are enjoying the tournament the most? Well, probably the teams that are, uh, have started on a good note, the teams that are doing well, definitely are the teams that are uh, doing, uh, you know. Are enjoying it the most. Like the university lecturers who say there's no right or wrong answer. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. But that's not the answer I wanted. <laughs> what answer were you looking for? You tell me. Um, we, they, it started from Nigeria, eh? mm. Equatorial Guinea holding them to a 1 1 draw. Yes. Then Mozambique. Yeah. Mohamed Salah needing a very late penalty to get a point for Egypt. Very well. Then that one that Ghana fell down flat. <laughs> to be very and then yesterday what we are coming to talk about namibia that is why it is important that i mention this mm. the american business magnate and politician rose peru he said that life is never more fun than when you are competing as the underdog against giants looking at the underdogs for a perfect yes, situation for my champions <laughs> <laughs> they are giving the Giants very tough time at the AFCON. Mm. So that's why I brought this, so that we look at the performance of Namibia against Tunisia. Go ahead. Then the game ended 1-0, one, one all right. But look at the perform performances of both teams in terms of expected goals. Look at the possession. Does it reflect the expected goals? If you see Namibia... Um, Tunisia have, having 61% of the ball, you'd expect that they should create more chances that would give them more expected goals. But Namibia, uh, Namibia with 39% of possession, had 1.8 um, expected goals. Almost two. Almost two goals. It means that if you are expecting goals in this game, Namibia should be scoring two. Uh, Namibia should be scoring two goals, and Egypt had uh, Tunisia had the chance of scoring just a goal. So let's look at the whole outlook, how the teams 
um, lined up. Nami, uh, Tunisia lined up in a 4-3-3. Then Namibia lined up in a 4-1-4-1 or 3-5-2. It, it means that Namibia knew that they were not going to control or have more of the possession. But they, they knew that they would pick their moments. And they, those moments decided the game. Look at the shots. Controlling more of the possession but having less shots. If Tunisia had 10 shots and Namibia had three more than them, uh, shots on target, Namibia four, Tunisia three. Now everything here will make sense when I go to the next graphic. That is the attacking trade from those two teams. Attacking right. trade, if you see how the outlook of the, the attacking trade map is, so those is in terms of pressure. Pressure is in the sense that which team at which moment had the opportunity of scoring or of scoring or having a dangerous chance. So from the first 15 minutes, you know Namibia had a very fast start. Um, looking for this um, attacking trade graphic from Mubarak now. Okay, very well. So that, that yes, yeah. that, um, at, uh, so this is it. Mm. This is the first 15 minutes of it. Those three chances that fell to Shalili and um, Hotu. Uh, Hotu. Mm. It, look, this is the attacking trade. How yeah, high... fell to him. Yes, how high the, the map is, that is how more dangerous the attacking threat is. So it means that the first 15 minutes of the game, Namibia had the more chance of scoring. Three, about three chances in the, between that first 15 minutes. Then after that, Namibia took over until the first half ended. Then after the first half, let's look at this. Look at how high this is. It means that after the first half, there was one corner that um, Ali Maulun took directly to the head of Nsakni, and he headed it and forced a very big save from Lord Kazapua. Mm -hmm. It means that in that game, he produced a very, some number of real saves. Then in the, around the 50th minute again, Shalili again, forcing that big um, goal line, or is it post clearance from Talbi, the centre-back. It means that he, Shalili, if Shalili had had a very good contact with the ball, that should have been a goal from him. Namibia again, uh, Tunisia again with more of the attacking threat around here, but still couldn't make use, good use of it again. Um, then Namibia again coming in here with more of the threat. Tunisia dominating more until that final moment that came around the 88th minute where John Hotu converted that chance. Namibia's style of play was that both teams have a very similar style of play, trying to come in through the wings. If you are looking at that, um, Tunisia attempted 18 crosses, and Namibia, who knew they were not going to control the ball, depended more on those shots coming in from the uh, crosses coming in from the wings. They tried eight, um, 21 crosses coming into the box, and with that one moment that uh, Muzi Betuel, he showed a very good sense of athleticism to put that wonderful cross in, and um, Hoto sneaking in from the back post and headed it in. The game is done for Namibia. Well, so then it's very clear that um, from, from, from the word go, there was a lot in terms of the potential threat that Namibia had. And it also goes to give a very important message to the coaches about possession and making the most of it. Jose Mourinho once said that once the opponent has the ball or has possession, a goal is scored. That is what you should always consider in the game. Well, um, after Karim, we're just going to go over to review the games that Mali and Burkina Faso played. Let's begin with the highlights of Burkina Faso. So Burkina Faso beat Mauritania, and um, this was after their captain converted a very uh, good penalty uh, to ensure the three points for them. Um, Achu. This did not necessarily come as a surprise because you predicted in their favor. Yeah, um, but only I did not expect they would find it as this, difficult this as tough. they did. Yeah. Very well. Um, I think that they came up against a much more composed Mauritanian team mm. who, yesterday I explained why the technical level of football in Mauritania is improving. And I think what we saw from them for 80-odd minutes was testament to that, that they are clear in their mind what they are. Right, and maybe this is where I also get to give you my own quotes. Man, know thyself. They, they know they are a very limited team, and so there's no point. And in many ways, like Namibia, Karim, Karim is forcing quotes from all of from us. <laughs> in many ways, like Namibia, there's no point in trying to be expansive because you don't have the quality. 
Um, especially when you come up against a team like Burkina Faso, who by themselves have made the name for being a team that is very solid. What I was surprised with was how they managed to test and stretch Blatituri and then Gustavo Sangari in that midfield yesterday. Because those two players, even against the best of teams on the continent, look world class when it comes to the AFCON. But they held their own. Unfortunately, I think it is the lack of experience because the, the goal that res- the incidents that resulted in the penalty happened because they lost their shape. So they moved into a very narrow back three that allowed spaces in behind for Burkina Faso. And the centre back who checked his shoulder and realised that if that cross comes in, he knew he knew that the goal was going to be scored, and he had to make that last ditch tackle. And unfortunately, they got punished for it. Okay, so Bertrand Traore um, ensuring that that one there. Um, so Burkina Faso. Uh, secured their three points and are looking forward to the next game. Uh, Mauritania, though, uh, would have to look out for because they have sent a message clear that it's likely that once they get themselves composed, their second encounter or their second fixture in this tournament could be a different story to tell. Let's now uh, talk about Mali. Now, Mali are one of the teams in West Africa who are said or are being assessed to have improved their football greatly, and the results have shown in maybe the last uh, decade. Now, let's talk about Mali. Mali beat South Africa. South Africa's captain, Percy Tao, disappointed uh, fans by losing out on a penalty in this game. But generally, we were expecting this to happen. And, and you, you predicted it rightly last yesterday. Yeah, rightly so, because uh, when you check these team, two, the both teams playing, um, you just knew that South Africa will always struggle against teams that will control the ball. And if you watch the game very carefully, Mali was only attacking from the right-hand side of, of midfield. That's where all the attacks were coming from. In South Africa, you know, they struggled to control the game. They, they couldn't find uh, gaps and to pass the ball through. Only always targeting, you know, Persitao, uh, and it was very, very difficult for them to uh, break in between the lines, especially with Mali controlling the game, with their captain, the right-back, always playing, pushing up high the pitch and playing more as a wing-back. That gave the, mid, the right midfielder also the chance to come into the middle and be able to avert their chances as well and create dangerous situations. And that's what South Africa struggled. Throughout the game, South Africa was a shadow of themselves. Um, they, they hardly passed the ball well to control. Well, in the second half, at some point, I think um, you know they were a bit, they, they composed themselves and tried to go for it. But Mali, for me, on the day, wasn't surprising because of the quality they have in the end. Because South Africa was just an average and couldn't control the game, no quality. At these type of games, not you need to have the quality to be able to turn your half chances into full chances. And Mali, on the other hand as well, even in transition as well, they moved well. They had the right movement, knew the players, who to find and who not to pass. My only disappointment with Mali was they weren't attacking from the left side. And so if South Africa had read them very well from the right side, uh, probably they could have destabilized the attack a little bit. Well, so that's the story of Mali as well. Mali securing it and uh, getting themselves ready for the next set of fixtures. AFCON today has a lot to bring you, and that will be after this round of messages. You stay right there with us here on Joy News, on Joy Prime, and Joy 99.7 FM.
Hi, Yemi Alade. There's a message from here in the studio. Achu, Achu Tamako has a big crush on you. We're going to be arranging that meeting when you come to Ghana to perform next, okay? So Yemi Alade, you, you saw Yemi Alade in that video, didn't you? So Yemi Alade is, um, you know, for those of us who are, you know, listening on Joy, you should also join the stream uh, on the Joy News page and also, you know, the Joy Prime pages as well. So you could see Yemi Alade, you know, the I'm looking for my Johnny hit maker. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you know, black guys can blush when, you know, these things happen, you know. The look on, you should see Achu's face now, you know. Yeah. And, and all of these artists, he didn't notice anyone else, but we were all talking about Magic System and how we missed their Gao song and all of that. But he's, you know, yeah. We'll talk about that later, right? Later, Achu. Yeah, yeah. I like, I like the look. I like the smile on your face. Anyway, guys, look, um, let's take a look at Morocco. Yeah. Morocco um, come into this tournament with the biggest set of expectations, even probably bigger than Senegal, who are the defending champions of this tournament, because they've done something uh, significant. Morocco versus Tanzania, that's what we're beginning with, and then later we'll do DR Congo versus Zambia, who won the tournament in 2012. Okay, Morocco versus Tanzania. Tanzania have a very good league, and it's very, it's very much followed. The, the, the local passion has been grown, and based on that, they are progressing steadily yeah. with that. Now, are they able to translate that in terms of the materials that have been drawn from there into probably giving Morocco a very big test this afternoon? And I think this is a wonderful opportunity for them because, as I've said, Tunisia have, Morocco have got the biggest problem of this tournament. They made their name at the World Cup playing counter-attacking football with, without the expectation of and responsibility of being expansive and needing to impose themselves in, on games and opponents. What that meant was that every time Onahi, the sensation who these days plays for Olympic Marseille, got onto the ball, he had more space to play with than he would have at the tournaments. In this tournament, when he gets the ball, he's going to see two banks of four in front of him. He's going to see perhaps two holding midfielders or two banks of three in front of him, which essentially means that Morocco will be expected to dominate games. What is going for them is that they've got quite a number of players who are coming into this tournament on the back of very good performance at their club level. Ashraf Hakim is in the form of his life at PSG. Um, I've mentioned Onahi already. El Nasiri scored a number of goals during the qualifying. Hakim Ziyech has been reintegrated into the team and has found his mojo and is playing well. Even though there is a contrast between his form with the national team and at club level because Galatasaray want to get rid of him even though he's had some really good games including those two goals against Manchester United. So, if they are able to figure that out and look at the best approach to games at this tournament, because the reality is this, people are going to confront Morocco with the idea that they are the best team on the continent, and so they are going to pay them respect. They will sit deep. deep. They are going to ask Morocco questions that teams have not done in the past, because for the qualifiers, if any team plays at home, they will play for the three points, right? If they play away, then the dynamics will change. So that is the problem that Morocco have got to figure out, and we'll wait to see what, what they've got to do. But if there's one player we are guaranteed is going to have a good tournament, irrespective of how far the team travels, it's Yassin Bono, the goalkeeper. Yassin Bono, do remember that uh, he also had a good time at the FIFA World Cup as well. Now let's talk about Mauritania and what they need to do to give us the second big surprise of this tournament. Tanzania? Yes. yes. Okay, so... Um, I think Tanzania will struggle against Morocco. That mm. will be for a fact. Uh, because of the fact that um, they play a very high-pressing football. It's when a very quick football. Try to also operate through more the channels. That's what Tanzania, their game plan will be. Because that's what, nas nationally, that's what they play. They like to press high. You know, also be able to break the lines through the wide areas. Now, where the problem will be for them when it, when it does come to Morocco will be the fact that Morocco has variation of, you know, they have variation of passing game. They can go short, they can go long. They're not going to play exactly how they played at the World Cup. This is an African tournament, so they will look to control the games because they do have the players to control the games. They can go for long when they want to. They can play a typical North African football by pressing very quick passing game. They could do that. They could also slow the game down and play a bit more 1-2-1-2 one, two, one, two, and create a chance. On top of that, they do have the quality. It has to be said that it's the quality that makes the difference in these games. I just think that in the end, Morocco with these three points 
is going to what's going to give them a very solid three points in the day because of the quality and the variation of passing as well. They need no second chance invitation into the box. The way they move, I've watched them and how they move with the ball. No second chance invitation. They know themselves so well, especially when the likes of Hakimi starts pushing up high the pitch as well, doubles up a bit into midfield. That they create that you know that chemistry, that rhythm. When they move into that shape, they're very quite dangerous, regardless of any team they play in the world. Hmm, interesting stuff there. Um, we've, we've been doing this a bit, and I'm, I'm getting excited about it. Uh, you know, um, I, I regularly will stay away from it. But what are we looking at in terms of the potential score lines? You know, I know some people are out there listening to us. You know yourselves, right? Well, <laughs> but we're not going to talk about you. Yeah. I think this is Morocco's game. Um, I think they have too much individual quality. Whilst the conundrum of figuring out the best approach to each of these three games is real, I think having that much winning ability is going to count for something. Because you can't have El Nesiri, you can't have Hakim Ziyech or Nahi in the form that he is, all of them contributing the insurance that Amrabat provides for the backline. And Roman Saiz has been in imperious form and not be able to, I mean, get it past Tanzania in your opening game. What I'll caution, however, is not to take this game for granted. And as you have explained, we've seen Tunisia, Ghana, Egypt, Nigeria, all of these teams being punished because they took things for granted. And, I mean, and Egypt were not particularly guilty of that, but they simply did not do enough to win. So they need to be wary of that. But at, at the end of the day, I think a two-goal win should be enough for them. Two-goal win from your end. What, what about you as well? I think two. I think two go to nothing. Two, two to nothing is two fine. To nothing for all. All right. <laughs> so is unanimous here in the studio. Remember, I am asking the questions, so I get to stay away from all of it. Uh, <laughs> but remember, yesterday we got one wrong, which was the you know the Tunisia Namibia game. Yeah. So yeah, don't get too flattered, okay? <laughs> well, you're still here on Afcon today on Joy News, on Joy Prime, and on Joy ninety nine point seven FM. Well, we'll be getting down to the next game uh, which will be played. Remember, there are two fixtures uh, today. And, of course, the big focus for tomorrow will be the Black Stars. But now, let's throw the focus on DR Congo and, um, and, and Zambia. Well, talk about, you know, uh, the likes of DR Congo and, and, and all of that. You do remember that Kennedy Mweni uh, made an emphatic statement that the Black Stars were going to be eliminated from this tournament. We'll talk about all of that tomorrow as we build up. But... DR Congo versus Zambia. Now, Zambia, you know, came into the 2012 tournament. I came in real strong, getting a lot of inspiration from the national team, members of the national team who perished in that air crash. Yeah. Sorry, in the, uh, you know, the airplane crash uh, back in the 90s and all of that. And, and they got it right. Of course, uh, you know, they had to do that at Ghana's expense once again. But now we're looking forward, and this becomes a very tough fixture to, to, to look at. Yeah. Um, what did the trick for them many years ago was playing football that was very fluid, very direct, and essentially gave teams less time to adjust and react to what they were doing. And, and you had all of these players who were excelling on the continent. So Stopila Sunzu uh, later went on to win a number of Champions League titles with, with Mazembe, the Katungo brothers, and all of these players who excelled. While they do not have that kind of quality, that continentally relevant quality anymore. They still have some decent players who are doing well in even more advanced leagues. So there's Pats and Dhaka and the rest of the pack. But I think the biggest trump card for Zambia has got to be the man leading the team, Ibram Grant. And when I think of how he led Ghana to the AFCON final and the stories of the preparation before games, for me, is why I respect him so much as a coach because he will, before even the game starts, go through every single possible scenario that he has to react to. And so he doesn't get taken by surprise. Of course, he had big help at that time from Herod News, who these days is the assistant coach with the Greek national team. I'm not sure who is the man playing that role for him then, but that is the way Abraham Grant works. And if he's able to get that and, and more importantly, get the materials that are providing the solutions. Because it's one thing figuring out what the opponent is going to do. It's one thing figuring out all of the possible scenarios. But having the solutions is another matter. Mm. Okay. So I'm going to leave the most difficult part to you. In 10 seconds, I want to know how this game is going to end, how you project it, based on what Achua said. 
Well, DR Congo won Zambia nil. I don't know about you, but that's what's been said from here in the studio. Thank you all so much. A lot coming up on all of our platforms on Joy 99.7 FM. It'll be drive time. And of course, on Joy News, it'll be pulse. Of course, there's more coming up here on Joy Prime. You stay well. We'll be back tomorrow with a big preview uh, towards the Ghana game, Ghana versus Egypt. But we'll bring you some more analysis as well when we come back uh, tomorrow on AFCON today. Thank you all so much for watching. Thanks to the whole production team here. And of course, we will be back. Uh, thanks to you, Achu. Thanks so much, Kwejo. Welcome to the marketplace. Coming up, Fist Solutions projects Bank of Ghana will cut policy rate by 8 percentage points to 22% by the end of the year, a move that will stimulate private sector spending. Also coming up, government to open negotiations with Eurobond holders in London on Monday as it moves to restructure about $13 billion of debt. Some cocoa bill holders who decided not to take part in government's cocoa bills exchange program demand full payment. It's not been easy. It's not been easy. My, I've got a kid in school, uh, in the university, and uh, I have medical bills I have to take care of. I have the house I have to take care of. And it, it's not been easy. My name is Daryl Kwan. Thanks for being with us. Details coming up. Thanks for staying with us. First up, the Bank of Ghana will embark upon a sizable monetary easing cycle, cutting the policy rate by a cumulative 800 basis points to 22% by the end of the year. That's forecast by Fish Solutions. This, it says, follows a substantial moderation of headline inflation. Here's more in this report. Since 2021, the Bank of Ghana has hiked the benchmark policy rate by 1,150 basis points to 30%. This has restricted access to corporate credit. But with inflation easing substantially, the central bank is expected to embark upon policy easing, 
However, Fitch Solutions said it usually takes about 12 months for interest rate adjustment to affect the real economy due to the lag in monetary transmission mechanisms. As such, the UK-based firm believes that the Bank of Ghana's dovish monetary policy stance is unlikely to result in a sharp increase in real loan growth, which has remained in contractionary territory 